And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart and peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through his, your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the second week of our series on Advent. Advent is a four-week period in the church calendar where we work toward Christmas and the coming of Christ. During the Advent season, what we do is we anticipate a second coming of Christ. We recognize on Christmas that our God has sent his Messiah, that God has come in flesh, Jesus Christ, the man God, born by the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit, that he has come and he has started to make all things new again. And that he reigns as king in our hearts and in our lives and in our churches. But yet we long for the day when he comes again to make all things new. And so this is what Advent is about. It's about that anticipation for his first coming, but also for his second coming. We long for that day. We anticipate that day coming. And during this season, we light candles, and each candle represents something uh, during the season. Last week, we talked about hope. This week, we're talking about peace. Next week, joy. And then in two weeks, we'll be talking about love. And with this week being all about peace, we're going to be taking a break over the next three weeks from our series in Genesis to look more in depth at three songs in the book of Luke around the birth of Christ. Today we're looking at a song by a, a man named Simeon. We don't know much about Simeon, but Simeon holds the infant Christ. You know, Will Ferrell may have held eight pounds, six ounce Jesus. Simeon gets to, gets to hold him. Will Ferrell just prayed to him, right? And so he holds the infant Jesus, and he says, Lord, now your servant can depart in peace. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would it take for your heart to be to the point where you can say, Lord, I can depart in peace. I've done it. I don't need any more. I've got enough. Lord, I have peace in my heart. I can depart 
I've seen enough, done enough. My life is complete. I feel at peace. What would it take for you to join Simeon and say, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace? Part of my job as your pastor is to prepare you for death and to help you think about death. We live in a world that's often isolated from death. We don't think about it very often because we surround ourselves with people that are oftentimes young as we are. We don't live the multi-generational life that our ancestors once did. And so we don't see death very often. But we still need to contemplate it because death is coming for each of us unless the Lord Jesus decides to come back. May it be so. What would it take for your heart to say, I've seen enough? Do you have more things that you feel like you need to check off your list this week before you can get there, this year, during your life, to where you can say, finally, I have peace? My thesis is this. Only Jesus gives you deep, soul-satisfying peace. Only Jesus gives you deep, soul-satisfying peace, as we'll see. Let's dive into this passage and and see how we get that. Verses 22 through 24 gives us context for what's happening in the passage. Let's look at them again with me, okay? There's there's a lot going on here. First, uh, let's let's read it again. I'm just going to read these, these three verses. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to the Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so with this, we have a lot of context for why Jesus and his parents are going to the temple. And there are two different things happening here, and if you, you have to know your Old Testament to kind of understand what's happening. The first thing that's happening is that Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, are presenting Jesus as an offering to the Lord. They're doing a dedication of the firstborn. Now this comes from the book of Exodus chapter 13. If you want, you can follow me there. You can just stick a finger in Luke and turn over to Exodus chapter 13. And in Exodus chapter 13, we read about the dedication of the firstborn. And this is what it says, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And why are they doing this? We jump to verse 14, and it explains why God wants his people to do this. Verse 14, And when in time to to come, your son asks, What does this mean? So basically, here we are, saying like, Why are we doing this? What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. From when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. And therefore I say to the the Lord, all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so what God wanted for the people is for them to remember the Passover, to remember the Exodus, to remember that God had once delivered them. And so they are to come and dedicate their firstborn to say, God, we we recognize that you have delivered us by the death of the firstborn, by passing over our firstborn. Our firstborn belongs to you. And here we have Mary and Joseph. 
bringing the firstborn of all creation to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. What ancient Israelites would do is they would bring their firstborn child, their firstborn son, to the temple and dedicate that child to the Lord. And then they would redeem the child by giving a small offering so that they get the, the, the first child back. They say, this child belongs to you, we're gonna give you a little bit of money, and then we'll get it back. It was five shekels, is what they generally gave. Luke doesn't actually mention the five shekels in this passage, and that is either, one, assumed that Mary and Joseph did it, or two, they were too poor to give. Because we find next that the second tradition that they're fulfilling here is a purification tradition. And what we learn in this purification tradition is that Mary and Joseph were not well-to-do as they do this. If you, uh, it's a purification after birth. The Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, there's tons of ceremonial uh, cleanliness traditions and things that you have to do to become ceremonially clean. And Leviticus explains that after a woman gives birth in Leviticus 12, that she's ceremonially unclean until she either brings a lamb or a pair of two turtle doves or young pigeons if she can't afford a lamb. And so here we have Mary and Joseph bringing the, the offering that they can't afford the lamb. They're bringing the two turtle doves or the two young pigeons in order to have purification after childbirth. Now, some of you have definitely faced um, this type of thing before because some of you have had friends that have said, look, Christians are so hypocritical. Their scriptures tell them to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to be cleansed after childbirth. Yet, how many of you bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to be cleansed after childbirth? You wear polyester, you eat shellfish. No Christians actually believe the Bible. We've all faced that type of attack on our faith. And that type of attack is just pure ignorance because it doesn't understand the message of Jesus whatsoever. The message of Jesus is that he came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. You see, Jesus completely fulfilled the law. He kept all the ceremonially clean things. He did all of the right laws. He kept the ceremonial law. He kept the cleanliness laws. He kept the moral law so that we might become righteous by his sacrifice. We're still held to that moral law, but not the ceremonial law. Because the moral laws for our flourishing, but the ceremonial law, it was all just pointing us to Jesus. So here Jesus says, the sinless Savior, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him instead of me. And so this is what we're learning here, is that Jesus satisfied all of these laws so that we could be released from the law, so that through our faith in him, we might have righteousness from God. Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to the temple. This is all just setting the stage for what happens next in the story. Because at this point in the story, we meet a man named Simeon. Now, we don't know much about Simeon whatsoever. We don't know how old Simeon is. We don't know what Simeon does for a living. We don't know where he's living. We don't know anything about his family. We just know a few specific things about Simeon. We know that he's righteous and devout. We know that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit was with him, and that God had revealed to Simeon that he would see the Christ before he died. That's all we know about Simeon. And what I want to zoom in on here is that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean, the consolation of Israel? 
This word consolation is just kind of a fancy word for comfort. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. At this point, the nation of Israel had been uh, occupied by Roman forces. Throughout their history, they had been occupied by various forces. The people of Israel had been occupied by Babylon, by Assyria. They had been attacked by foes all around them. And they had, had, from never, they had never had real peace since the time of David, really. Yet a prophet named Isaiah in Isaiah 40 said, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so these words were words of comfort to the people of Israel. They were longing for the day in which they might be consoled, that they might be comforted, where they might be delivered from warfare and oppression. Almost universally, the people of Israel saw this as a political promise, that one day they would be delivered from their political enemies, that they would no longer be at war, that they would no longer be occupied, that they would be set free, and that they would be great once again. They were longing for a great king like King David to come and set them free to rule and reign throughout the land. And the way that God chose to do this was far different than what anyone had in mind. Because instead of a great royal birth, the king that God chose to send was laid low in a manger surrounded by animals. A few weeks ago, uh, my my son's Christmas, uh, my son's class at at school, he goes to public school here in Somerville, uh, they were doing this thing where they were talking about different traditions. And uh, Shepard wanted me to come and share about our Advent traditions. We have a lot of different traditions that we do during Advent. Now, this is Somerville, which is a very secular area, and I'm sharing a very religious tradition with these kids. So I'm coming in being a little careful. And uh, so I just share about the baby Jesus and share about Advent and all the things that we do. And I have a nativity scene, and some of the kids are like, who's in the food thing? I'm like, well, that's baby Jesus. And they're like, why is he with the animals? I'm like, well, there was no room in the inn. I don't know what to tell you. He, 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 he was born with animals. We, we lose sight of how shocking the story of the nativity is, that God would send, send his king, his promised Messiah, to be born in a manger, be born and laid in a manger. And that this king on his coronation day, he was not given a crown of gold and jewels. He was given a crown of thorns. And he was led to his throne, which was not a royal seat, but a wooden cross. He didn't have a ring placed on his finger, but nails placed into his hands. He was not praised among the people, but spat upon. He was given a royal robe, but in mockery. He was given a sign nailed to the wooden cross saying, this is your king. Little did they know. Although he knew. And he didn't say, you're all going to hell. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. God's king would rule, but he would not rule in the way that they expected him to rule. God's king would rule not politically, but in the hearts of all those who would call upon his name. 
The king that God had in mind was nothing like the king that the people of Israel had in mind. And I think Alistair Begg said this really well. Uh, that's a, that's a, a Scottish preacher from, who lives in Cleveland, Ohio now. Um, he said that the deliverance that the people required was not that which they desired. The deliverance that the people required was not that which they desired. They desired a geopolitical deliverance, but God required an even greater deliverance, a deliverance from their own slavery to sin. The same thing is so true for us, is it not? That the deliverance that we desire is not what is required. When I was early in my career, um, I, I went into ministry very young. And so I've, I've always kind of lived on bare minimum in many ways. Um, and it, especially early in my career, I mean, we just had enough to get by. Like, it was, it was get the money, buy the groceries, we eat exactly pretty much what we're making at that moment. And I was having such a hard time, just stressed financially. And so I decided that I needed to talk to a financial advisor and talk to, talk to him and figure it out. So I set up a meeting. I went and met with a financial advisor. And I just kind of explained my system for budgeting and all the different things that I was doing. And I was like, please help me. Help me to be able to make ends meet and to be able to, to, be able to save and, and reach all these goals. And he said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can tell you what your most foundational problem is. And I said, please tell me what my most foundational problem is. I want to do better. He's like, you don't make enough money. <laughs> He's like, I can help you manage it. You need more of it. I can't make it appear. I can't just make it appear in your bank account. You see, the deliverance that I desired was not that which was required I was hoping that he would be able to magically help me in some way. Let me ask you this question this morning, church. What would it take for your soul to be at peace? What is the deliverance that you so desire? Simeon was waiting on the consolation of Israel. It's a good desire. What are you waiting on? Where does your mind wander to, daydream to, long for? What would it take for your mind to stop racing and for you to just rest? What is keeping you from feeling peace? Where do your desires point you? Is it for a new job, for a spouse, for a child, for a significant other, for a lot of money, a nicer home? What would it take for your soul to be at peace? Complete this statement. I will be able to rest when blank happens. When will you feel an ability to set aside your labors and to rest? Some of us have huge ambitions in life. We have so much more that we need to accomplish before we could possibly say to the Lord, I'm ready to go. <laughs> my soul is at peace. You can take me now. I'm with you. I want to see my children grow up. I want to be a grandparent. I want to travel. But yet, Christ demands us to be ready to go at any moment. And how do we get that? 
How can I possibly get that when I have such huge ambitions? And those are just my personal ambitions. I want to see our church grow. I want to reach people for Christ. I want to send missionaries. I want to plant churches. I want to see young young ministers raised up in our church, send out church plants, all this sort of thing. But yet the Lord demands of me that my heart be at peace in him. On a smaller scale, how are you feeling peace each and every day? Do you feel a lack of peace when your home isn't clean, when your children aren't quiet, when you just don't get all the things on your to-do list done? You know, peace can be defined as the absence of conflict, and for many of us, we view to-do list as our enemy, and that we need to just knock one enemy out after the next before we can feel peace. Personally, this is, this is what I've recognized in my own life, that I oscillate between an anxiety that I'm not getting enough done, that I need to work harder, that I need to knock more things out on my to-do list, care for more people, write more sermons, that sort of thing. And then when I need to turn that off, I don't run to faith. What I do is I just say, I need to think about anything but that. And so I numb my mind and I hide. And, I, and it's not, my, my faith is not real in this way. I, I just say, okay, not thinking about that anymore. I'm not going to think about that anymore. I simply create an imaginary world in my head where my job does not exist. Where I can just be alone in my castle, but yet I have three children who are young that don't allow me to be young in my ca- alone in my castle. It's not their fault, they're children. I'm the living embodiment of that meme where the dog is sitting in the house and, he set, and the house is on fire and he says, oh, this is fine. <laughs> and that's what I do. I just create an imaginary world in my head and ignore the stresses. Instead of turning to God, I just turn away from my problems. Is anybody there with me? Feeling the numbness, trying to numb it. When you feel your heart getting noisy and a sense of restlessness or a lack of peace, what will actually solve that issue? Because what the scriptures teach us is that your main problems are not external, but internal. That it doesn't matter how many things you check off your to-do list, you're never actually going to feel productive. It doesn't matter how successful you are in your career. You will never actually feel successful. Because the problem isn't that you simply haven't done enough things. The problem isn't that you simply haven't succeeded enough. The problem is that you don't have peace in your heart because you don't have peace with your God. Your biggest problem is the fact that you're a rebel trying to seek your own way apart from God, apart from what he gives you, the peace that you desire is not the peace in which you require. No amount of external peace will ever give you the deep soul peace that you long for. Your greatest enemy is not the task list, it's not the the noisy kid or some political issue. Your greatest conflict is not external at all, it's internal. As the great theologian Taylor Swift puts it, It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. Your biggest problem is that you're a sinner in rebellion against God. 
trying to make your way independent of him. And as St. Augustine, or Augustine, put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. You might say, now hold on, hold on a second. How can the forgiveness of sins and a peace from God possibly help me? I've got stuff to do. I need help. I need support. I need a few dollars. I don't need God. I need a new job. That's what would give me peace. It just would, wouldn't work. It would be temporary. Look at the prayers of Paul. So Paul, throughout the New Testament, constantly surrounded by conflict, constantly being shipwrecked. He has this whole list of things, whipped by cords of lashes. I mean, he's experiencing traumatic things, just amazing suffering. Yet his letters are full of thanksgiving. And what does he praise God for over and over again? Not the things that are going on around him, but the things that are going on in him. That God has given him a desire and an understanding of the work of Christ on his, uh, and Christ in his heart. That he's increasing his love for the brothers and for the saints. Paul knows that his greatest issue is himself. He's mastered the art of being at peace while standing in a hurricane. And friends, that is the message of Christ. Not that he'll remove you from the hurricane, but that he'll give you something firm to stand on. That's how you can have peace, because the worldly external issues, you're never going to check enough things off the list. You're never going to feel successful enough. You're never going to have external peace. I hate to burst your bubble. It's just never going to happen. You cognitively know this, but you need to be reminded of it, just as I do, that you're just never going to feel like you've done enough. So friends, don't just create an imaginary world in your head where it doesn't matter how much you do. Go to Christ and hear the good news that God offers us. Jesus takes you off the treadmill and gives you the longings of your heart. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus says to you, you're approved. You do not have to work anymore for approval. Jesus says to you, I am in control. You do not have, con have to control every aspect of your life. Let that sink in. Jesus is in control. Jesus approves of you. Because his life was righteous on your behalf. You don't have to get your act together for God to love you. Jesus gives you this promise. He says, I will give you eternal life. This life is not just here to be squeezed of everything. But he gives us the gift of life that never ends. I don't know about you, but that eases many of my anxieties, knowing that I don't have to do it now that I have eternity to enjoy with him. Look at Simeon. He, he, he's in the temple waiting, and then the parents come. The parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. 
And he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Imagine this moment where Simeon takes this Christ into his arms, this Jesus into his arms. He may not have known everything that we know about Jesus, but he recognized him as the salvation of the world. The child of these two poor children (laughs) who are bringing him in. Consider with me who Simeon is holding. He didn't merely, he's not merely holding a king, he's holding the God of the universe, the second member of the Trinity in human form. This child is the word of God spoken by the Father in his creative work in Genesis 1. This is the one through whom all things were made. This child was not created. He was always with God, always has been with God, always has been God. This child displays the innermost reality of what God is like. This is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This child does not merely point to the one to find peace. He is peace himself. Simeon took this child in his arms and he experienced peace enough to say, I can die today. What are you waiting on to say, I can die today? If someone came and said, here's all the success you've ever longed for, here's all the wealth you could ever dream of, here's all the recognition that you've ever wanted, would you trade the good news for that? I'm afraid many of us would because that's what our hearts long for, but the, the, the deliverance that we require is different from that in which we desire. And this morning, be reminded, church, of the good news of Jesus. Taste of it just a little bit so that you can see how good it is, so that you can desire him once again. He is better. When you meet the real Jesus, all of your previous desires, they somehow feel small. You recognize that your desire for money, your desire for satisfaction and whatever you're looking for, It's just a small desire that points you to him. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, God is the only one who can give you that peace in your heart that you're longing for. But that doesn't mean that your life is just going to be peaceful. I want you to look with me as we, as we turn to close today. I want you to look with me at what Jesus has to say himself. Our Prince of Peace, the one that Simeon is saying, now I can depart in peace. The one that's promised to us in Isaiah 9, the scripture that we read earlier, that says that, the, the furtherance of his government and peace shall know no end. This is what he has to say about peace. He says, Matthew 10, do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against, his mo- against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies 
will be those of his own household. And what's Jesus saying? He's saying that the peace that you experience doesn't deliver you from the storm, but it gives you a firm foundation. That he delivers us from the internal struggles and strife, but not the external. And that when you trust in Christ, friends, some of you have experienced this, when you trust in Christ, it might mean that your life becomes more challenging. It might mean that you are rejected by your own family. Some of us can't imagine that reality of being rejected by our own family, but we have brothers and sisters around the globe in Islamic nations and nations where their, their religious heritage is so important that they taste and savor Jesus and they see how sweet it is and they know that it's worth so much more than family approval. And that's what Christ is saying. As he's saying, if you come to me, I will give you peace in your soul, but not peace in your life. But you can handle that lack of peace when you have the internal lack of, when you have the internal peace. When you've experienced the eternal, internal joys of Christ and the peace of following him, you know that it's all worth it. Simeon recognized this too. Look at what he said in verse 33. Verse 33, it says, and and his father and mother marveled at what was said about them. So it would take a lot for Mary and Joseph to marvel at something. People have already been singing songs to Jesus. They've had angels appear to them. A few wise men are like on their way uh, to bring him gifts. And the shepherds show up and they're like, where's the king, Uh, basically. It's going to take a lot for them to marvel, but they're marveling at what Simeon said. And this is what he says. He blesses them and he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel. You see, what's he saying? He's saying, this kid's going to be controversial. My soul can depart at peace, but this kid, he's going to be a result of many being raised up and me being brought down. Christ himself teaches this, that he's going to lift up the humble. He goes to the sinners. He goes to the outcasts and the downcasts. But yet the, the, the haughty he brings low. The humble will become proud. And the proud will become humble. And for a sign that it is opposed. Simeon says that Jesus will be opposed. People aren't going to like him. And a sword will pierce through your own side also. Now he's, he's speaking to Mary. He says, Mary, a sword will be pierced through your own side also. He's not speaking of a literal sword, but he's essentially saying, Mary, you're going to see your son die. And it's going to be as though a sword passes through you also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's the last thing that he says. And Jesus is the revealer of hearts, and he knows where we are. And if you want to know what's in someone's heart, who that person really is, Consider how they respond to Christ. How they respond to the message of Christ. Never has there been a man whose life is so attractive and yet whose teachings are so difficult. When you look at Jesus, what does your heart experience? When you look at Christ, does your heart explode in joy saying, With you, I'm finally at peace. 
You can take me, Lord. I know that I'm approved. I don't have to earn approval anymore. I know that you are in control. You're going to take care of everything after me. I know that I have the gift of eternal life, so I don't have to stress about what I accomplish in this life. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This life is important. We have to invest everything we have to the furthering of God's kingdom. But our ambitions are often far too small. We're focused on personal issues and not on the peace of Christ that he offers to us. So church, this morning, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Simeon. And I know that you can't take Christ into your arms this morning, but he can take you into his. I want you to enjoy the peace that only he affords and the comfort that you can receive from him. The forgiveness of sins, the peace everlasting. When you look at Jesus, does your heart explode with peace like Simeon, or do you want to run and hide from Jesus, continuing to pursue your own versions of peace and satisfaction? Church, let's run to him today. He wants to take us into his arms. On the night before he died, Jesus was betrayed. The Prince of Peace was given over for a few pieces of silver. And on that night, he instituted a sacred meal to remind us and continue to remind us of the sacrifice that he's going to make for our peace so that we can receive peace from him. And he instituted this sacred meal and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church, let's stand and sing the praises of God and receive this meal. Father, as we uh, come to your table, we pray that you would help us to put our feet on firm foundation of Christ, that our hearts will be on the longing for your coming and your kingdom, that we know that that is really the longing that is underneath all longings, that we long for you, that we want to be near you. God, we pray that our desires would not be too small, as you've often found them, but that you would give us a sweet desire for you coming and for you reigning and ruling in our hearts. Father, we pray that we might trust the gospel today, believe it wholeheartedly, full of faith. Fill us up today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.